it's all good. So I want to ask you just a few questions. How many of you are learning your numbers and learning how to count? Yeah, good. Oh, we're proud of you for that. How many of you are learning some of your letters? Very good. We're proud of that too. How about your colors? You're getting to learn your colors, the different colors? Oh, you are learning so much. We are, your moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, we are all so proud of you. You know what? As we're learning and as we're learning all kinds of good stuff, sometimes we learn words and they're confusing. Because sometimes we use one word and mean we mean two different things by it. So I just told you that I am proud of you and your parents are proud of you, and that's a good way to use the word proud. It means we love you, we're so happy with all the things that you're learning, you're growing up, doing a good job. But then there's a bad way we use the word proud. And what I mean by that is when we say we're proud, when we think we're the best, we're better than everybody else, and that it's all about me. That's a bad being, that's being proud, that's bad, that's called pride. And I'm going to talk about the bad word, pride. But I'm going to teach you one more word and and talk about in my message in just a minute. It's the word humility. Can everybody say humility? Humility. Okay. It's going to be a little bit in my message before I use this word. But here's maybe a good way to think of humility. Can you all do this with your hands? Just like this? Like you were ready to receive something in your hands, boys and girls? Can you all do this with your hands? Can you see me? Hey, boys. Right here. I know she's prettier than I am, but look at me. <laughs> Can you put your hands like this? Humility is, is coming to God like this, ready to receive what God wants to give us. A proud person says, I don't need what God has, but we need what God has for us, right? So humility is we put our hands out like this, ready for what God wants to give us. So a little bit later on, when you go back to the pew and you're sitting with your mom and dad, if you hear me use the word humility, maybe if you're listening closely, you can go, I know what we're talking about. I'm ready for what God wants to give me. Can you do that? Yeah? Okay. Why don't you go back to your seats to mom and dad and listen for that word humility. Well, as they're making their way back, again, Moms and dads, we are so glad to have the partnership that we get to have with you here at Trinity to partner with you. It's God entrusts his children to you, and we have the privilege and all of these teachers of partnering with you and helping you to raise them to not just learn their numbers and their colors and, and their letters and such, but to learn Jesus and to know his great love for them, and we're so thankful for that. I want to start by saying that uh, last spring, I got to take a little bit of a road trip with one of my college buddies, and we went to Western Kentucky. We may or may not have had some beverages for which that region is famous, um, but we also got to do some other really cool stuff. So we, uh, we went to Mammoth Caves, we went to the Louisville Slugger Baseball Bat Factory, and then we got to go to Abraham Lincoln's birthplace. Now, I, am a, I love history, and when I was a little boy, I was a huge Abraham Lincoln buff. I loved Lincoln and the Civil War and all that stuff. I think I read every book in the little children's library back in my hometown. So, needless to say, when, when we discovered that we were going to go see this, uh, I was a little geeked out about it. Like, oh, Abraham Lincoln, this is really cool. 
And, and so we get there, and as you can see from the picture, it's sort of like, it looks like an ancient temple, like a Greek or Roman temple. And there's 56 steps, one for each year of Lincoln's life that you have to ascend to go up to this temple, which then enshrines, by contrast, this ornate temple, enshrines this really rather humble log cabin. And we got inside, and I'm like, wow, whoa, that's where Abraham Lincoln was born. Only to leave and to go outside and to read a sign on the exit as we're going out and says, well, not really, actually. This isn't the real cabin that Lincoln was born in. They thought it was when they built all this stuff, but then they found out later that it really wasn't. Actually, I thought it was pretty hilarious. But I should tell you that to tell you this. One of the most worrisome, scariest thoughts that I have is that when all is said and done and when I get to the end of, of my life, I find out that everything was really a sham. Not that Jesus isn't real or that Christianity is fake, but that, that I was a sham that I had deceived myself and thought that everything looked good, that I had, I had done really well, I'd gotten everything right, it was just the way it was supposed to be, only to get to the end of my life and have Jesus say to me, as he warns us in Luke's gospel, eh, no, I don't know you. I don't know you. My pride will be the culprit. And C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful book, Mere Christianity, he has a whole chapter on pride, and he calls it the great sin. Pride is the sin that underlies all the rest of our sins. Now, we live in a culture that celebrates pride, doesn't it? Thinks it's a good thing to promote yourself, to promote your proclivities, whatever they might be. Christians would say, no, no, we know better, that we're not to be proud, and yet at the same time, we're not immune. I would say to you that I think we religious types are actually especially susceptible to pride. Oh, because, because we, can, we can do religious things so well, we're so pious, that it actually inflates our egos, and it makes us delusional. See, deep down, my pride believes that I'm actually much better than I really am. And you, you're actually worse than you really are. And that God isn't as great as he really is. That I really need him. It's pride that says, oh, listen, this is all really great for my kids. I want them to have that, but I don't really need any of this religious stuff. Nah, I'm good. Pride is, as C.S. Lewis would say, it is the completely anti-God state of mind. So as we look at the parable of Jesus today, you have first this Pharisee. And it says that he takes up his position in the temple. He stands his ground. In other words, he thinks he owns the place, that the temple of God is for his glory. Notice it said that he actually prays not to God. He's really talking to himself. And he has the audacity to thank God. And the Greek word there is Eucharist, which is what we're here to do, to offer a Eucharist. To offer his Eucharist to God, to thank God that he's so much better than everybody else. All these other terrible people, and especially that atrocious, cheating tax collector standing there behind me. I'm so much better than that. And then he starts listing his achievements, that he's fast twice a week. And then he tithes. In other words, he gives 10% of everything that he gets Notice not what he receives from God, everything he gets on my own, thank you very much, I'm good. 
In his eyes, he is righteous. He thinks everything is right. It's as it should be. I'm just fine. I'm self-sufficient. I've done everything that I need to do. There's an irony here. Essentially, he's come to the temple to tell God he really doesn't need God. And Jesus says that he leaves that place as not righteous. Things aren't right. Because he leaves the temple that day the same way he came to that temple. He he came and he went without God. Now, of course, if you know this story and you listen to it and you say, what an absolutely foolish, pompous jerk. Thank God I'm not like that guy. Oops. See what I just did? See, like that Pharisee, we all love the comparison game because we can always find somebody who's worse than us, or at least we think they are worse than we are. And we always set up the comparison. You know, you don't compare yourself to people better than you. No, no, you compare yourself to people worse than you, right? So that you feel better. You win the competition. Lewis would say it this way. Pride is essentially competitive. Raise your hand if you're a competitive person. All right. (laughs) Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. I mean, let's face it. Winning is everything, right? Anybody can lose. Oh, that sounds too extreme, doesn't it? All right, right, fine, fine. Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing right? It's, you know, I got to be the best. I got to have the most. I, I got to be on top. I have to be supreme. I need to be God. That's pride. And as easy as it is to see the pride and the arrogance of someone else and to be res- just repulsed by their obnoxious, ridiculous view of themselves, it is a much harder thing to see pride in yourself. Here's C.S. Lewis one more time. If you think you're not conceited, (laughs) guess what? You are conceited. Pride makes us delusional. First towards God. I'm not really here in church to worship God. I'm really here to feel better about myself by convincing myself that God must just be so happy with me. I've done so well in my life, especially compared to you all. God just must be so happy with me. And again, I can make it sound so religious. There's an old hymn. We sang it in the first service. It goes like this. Chief of sinners though I be, Pastor Veith is worse than me. (laughs) Well, why are you laughing? He is. Can't you tell? (laughs) See, it makes me delusional not just towards God. It makes me delusional towards you, towards everyone, towards myself. See, I'm actually here just to worship myself. I'm here in the temple of my own making. That's why I want it to be the songs that I like, and I want it all to be the way I want it to be, because it's really all about me. But inside the little temple of my own making, it's fake. It's a sham. It's not the real me. It's empty. I've never forgotten my best and worst confession that I ever made. It was the same one. I had done, this was several years ago. I had done something that I knew I needed to take to confession. I was, I was ashamed of what I had done. I was angry with myself because I had done it. And I was on this retreat, and they were offering confession. 
And so I went into confession to deal with it. And I had never met him before, but I go in and this father confessor is there to hear my confession. And I laid out before him what I did. And then he started asking me questions. He was very gentle, very pastoral about it, but he kept probing deeper into my heart. And, and I got to tell you what, I started getting angry. Listen, I, I already said what I did. Why are you torturing me? Just give me the forgiveness and let me out of here. What are you doing to me? But like a good doctor of the soul that he was, he could see what I couldn't see. My pride. That there was a deeper sin underneath the one that I had come to confess. And that I had fallen into that sin that I had come to confess largely because... I didn't think I was capable of doing that. That I thought I was better than that. That's why I was mad at myself. I thought, you know, with my own effort and my own determination, I I shouldn't have fallen into that sin. I should have prevented it. I could have avoided this whole thing on my own. You know what? I don't really need God. As Proverbs says, pride comes before the fall. So as painful as that was, it was the best confession that I ever experienced because I had to first be humbled. I had to be emptied so that I could be forgiven and then filled with God's mercy. As I mentioned in the beginning, we are wrapping up this sermon series called Fiat. Let it be. And there's not a better word that we could use to wrap it up. Let humility be to me as you have spoken. Kiddos, if you were listening when I was talking to you before, humility, there's our word. You put your hands out like that. Humility. Because to give your fiat, which again is to say to God, Lord, let it be to me as you have spoken. To give God your fiat, humility is the prerequisite. In fact, I would tell you it's synonymous. Because humility is not self-degradation. Oh, I'm just so terrible. I'm a horrible person. No, 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 no. It's not that. But what it is is a surrender. Humility is the virtue that remedies the vice of pride. It's losing that self-delusion about yourself by being honest, and that's going to hurt. But what it does is it opens us up. It gives us that posture of receptivity, the open hands before God. Humility sees that I have absolutely nothing unless it comes from God. And therefore, I have to be totally, 100%, I've got to rely on Him. You know what pride says? Like a little toddler, let me do it. Humility says, let it be to me as you've spoken, Lord. That's what the great saints of the church teach us. We may look at them as these wonderful models of virtue, and they are, but if you ever listen to the saints, if you hear them tell their own story, they'll always tell you what great sinners they were, how they struggled with their sin, and that the only thing is the mercy of God. When Martin Luther died, as he's laying on his deathbed, the last words out of his mouth were, we are all beggars. Humility must begin by admitting that we are proud. And then stopping the comparisons with other people. St. Augustine tells us, you know, you don't go to the doctor to tell the doctor what's wrong with somebody else. You go to the doctor to tell him what's wrong with you. And finally, we have to become like the tax collector. 
We have to stand before God as a person who deserves absolutely nothing, and our only recourse is to beg. Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now those of you who love grammar, that is actually the definite article there in the Greek, the. Because there it is. Each of us stands before God by ourselves as the sinner, the one and only sinner in the place. That's when I stop becoming a fake. There's nobody else here, friends. It's just me and God. And compared to God, I can't compete. But with our Lord, it's not a competition. God doesn't want us to be humble because he loves to just see us grovel and beat ourselves up and prove how great he is. No, he wants us to be humble so that we would come empty-handed, ready to receive his mercy. The tax collector doesn't use the usual word for mercy in the New Testament. It's something more like, let oh God expiate me, the sinner. Now see, that's a temple term. It's a sacrificial term. Day and night in the Old Testament temple, sacrifices were made to expiate for sin, to atone for sin, to cover up sin, cover over it, to take it away. Both of these men are standing in the temple. One is off standing by himself telling God how great he is, and the other one, the tax collector, stands beneath God, and he asks God to do what God does in his temple. Expiate my sin, Lord. And you all came to church today. The question is, where are you standing? Are you standing off somewhere by yourself thinking, eh, I'm doing pretty good. Eh, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most. I got this on my own. Or did you come to stand beneath the cross? Underneath the sacrifice? There's two dynamics going on here. One is that we're all here together in worship. We're all in the same predicament. But there is this other dynamic, friends. Right now, it's also one-on-one. It's you and Jesus, the sinner and the Savior. Oh, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And he is. He is merciful to each of us. So no matter what it is that you have done, including the pride that's underneath whatever it is that you have done, humble yourself. No excuses, no blaming somebody else, no comparing yourself to someone else. None of it. Humble yourself. Come empty-handed. And then you will be ready to receive what he is so ready to give to you. To expiate your sins. To give you his mercy. And then you will walk out these doors this morning and you will be righteous. Your life will be made right because you are going out of this place with Jesus. I want to close this sermon and I want to close this series with a prayer that comes out of the Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition. It's based on what the tax collector says and it goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, if if you're a person like, I don't really know how to pray, start right here. This is a simple but profound prayer. 
Now, when Orthodox Christians pray this prayer, they repeat it over and over again. They'll sometimes even use prayer beads or a little prayer rope with knots on it. Much like you might see Catholics use a rosary, they'll do this with this Jesus prayer, and they'll pray it over and over and over again, because here's why. The idea is that this prayer through its repetition, begins to wash over you, and it begins to absorb you. You're absorbed in this prayer. So I know we got a little squirreliness today, but we're going to try this. I'll give you just a brief moment to pray it for yourself. Just a few times, repeat it over and over again, just in the quietness of your own heart. Because right now, it's one-on-one. It's just you, the sinner, and your merciful Savior. Savior.